0: Turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We're continuing the series that we've begun in Psalm 119, Oh, How I Love Your Law. And today we'll look at verses 9 through 12. Psalm 119, as we've seen, is all about the law of God. And as we go through this series, each week we'll do an exposition of the verses. That's kind of the first half of the message. And then we'll look at one principle about God's law, Look to a specific law in the Bible and learn how to apply it today. So follow along as I read these four verses, beginning with Psalm 119 and verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Well, verse 9 begins with a question. How can a young man keep his way pure? The young man here means a young man up to the time of marriage. So we're talking maybe an older boy on up through the age where he gets married. So how can a young man like this keep his way pure? And maybe the psalmist is asking this question because most young men wouldn't ask the question themselves. Uh, Young men are not necessarily known for having a concern for purity. But this is an important question. You could say even an urgent question. Young men are the future leaders of our families, of our churches, of our nation. And youth is a time with lots of challenges and temptations that run in the opposite direction of purity. Thomas Manton writes, So few youths take to the ways of God. No age does despise the word so much as this, which has most need of it. It's a rare thing to find a Joseph or a Samuel or a Josiah that seek God betimes. But this should be the concern of every young man, and not just every young man, but young women too, and not just young men and women, but All of us, really. When Paul writes to Timothy, uh, who's a younger pastor, he says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And that same concern should be there for all of us. Paul tells the Ephesians that God chose us that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God is concerned for our purity. And holiness. So, what's the solution to the question? Well, according to the psalmist, a young man or anyone else can keep his way pure by guarding his way according to God's Word. What is it that usually determines our way? What's usually our standard and our guide? Well, it could simply be the message that we hear so often today in so many different ways follow your heart. It's the message of every Disney movie today. Why can't you today criticize beliefs that are different than yours? Why does our culture pretend that all these different ideas are of equal value? Because there's no outside standard to measure them against. No word from God saying, this is right and that is wrong. So instead we say, follow your heart. But Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And there are lots of other false sets of rules or laws that people use today too. But the psalmist here encourages us to take God's law as our standard, our rule of holiness. God's law, God's word functions for us as both a standard to measure against and the instrument by which God causes us to become holy. Listen to the words of Jesus to his disciples in a couple different chapters in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in the next chapter, he says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And then a couple chapters after that, as he's praying for his disciples, he prays to the Father, sanctify them or make them holy, make them pure. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is the truth. His word makes us clean. His word makes us holy. God's word is like a perfect map showing us how to get to holiness. Now, I love maps. Back in the day, I would go to AAA and get a bunch of maps. Still do sometimes, truth be told. When we went out west, we took a stack of paper maps with us. Now, part of the reason for that was that we wanted to teach our kids how to read a map. But another part of the reason was I wasn't sure where we would be out of cell service and unable to depend on Google Maps. Has Google Maps ever steered you wrong? I've had Google Maps sometimes lead me on a very nonsensical route. I've had it lead me to a dirt road that went nowhere. I've had it take me on routes that were closed. You see, it doesn't matter how closely you're following the map if the map is flawed. But God's law is a map to holiness that is flawless. I've had Google Maps misread where I am. So the plan that it gave me didn't work. And you don't always get that little warning that says accuracy low. Sometimes it makes you think that it really does know where you are, but it doesn't. God's word, though, will always provide the proper diagnosis of where you are. Of who you are. Of your condition. God's law shows you how you measure up to God's standard of holiness. Now, sometimes Google Maps is actually accurate, and it gives me a good route, just like God's Word, and then I introduce user error. I missed the road I was supposed to turn on, or I'm reading the map wrong. And we do that with God's Word, too. Even with that accurate map, we can still lose our way if we don't pay close attention to it. In the book of Jeremiah, God warns the people of the judgment that's coming because of their sin. And the Lord says to them, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. God's word is the standard for holiness. So walk in these ancient paths. Well, Psalm 119 verse 10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Now it's easy for our hearts to be divided or insincere. In the book of Hosea, God is confronting Israel and Judah because they're unrepentant. And Hosea 7.14 says this, They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. So they sound repentant. They seem repentant, but their wailing is not true repentance. It doesn't come from the heart. It's easy to look on the outside like you're seeking holiness. But on the inside, the reality is that you're seeking yourself and your own desires, rather than seeking God and his holiness. Paul writes to the Colossians, and he tells them, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, how do you do that? Do we get any practical advice? Well, Paul actually gets very practical because here's what that verse goes on to say. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So when the church gathers for teaching, that's part of how God puts his word in you. And when we gather in community groups and we discuss what we're learning and we help each other apply it, that's part of how God puts his word in you. When we sing psalms, God's word that he's given us in the book of Psalms, we sing those together, set to music, as we've been learning how to do as a church. That's part of how God puts his word in you. When we sing hymns, the songs of the faith that those before us have written, That's part of how God puts his word in you. When we sing spiritual songs, other songs that faithfully express the truth of God's word, that's part of how God puts his word in you. So if you want to do what the psalmist is saying here, then you need to be with the church when we gather for teaching. You need to be with the church when we gather for fellowship and study. You need to sing when we sing. And how should you do it? with my whole heart. Let God's word dwell in you richly, and that will help us to not wander from God's commandments. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So in this verse, we see that God's word will help us to fight sin. Therefore, we have to have it in our heart ready for when the temptation comes. Jesus faced temptation during his 40 days in the wilderness. And what did he do when the temptation came? He quoted scripture. In fact, he quoted specifically from God's law in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Those of you who spend a lot of time cooking in the kitchen at home, you know what it's like when you're making something and you hit a necessary ingredient for the recipe that you're using, but you don't have any in the house. You have to run to the store That's inconvenient, that's inefficient. Sometimes it causes real problems because you can't afford the time. And if that happens a lot, you'll be defeated in your cooking efforts. Instead, you want to have a pantry that is well-stocked, that has everything you need for whatever might come up. Well, can you imagine if Jesus, when he faced this temptation in the wilderness, said to Satan, wait just a few days, Satan, I need to go back to the temple and read the scrolls a little bit more so that I know what to do with your offer. Why didn't Jesus need to do that? Because he had God's law hidden in his heart. He already knew it. He had the pantry of his heart well stocked with God's law for whatever need came up. He didn't set out to memorize it or get really familiar with it because the temptation had already come. He prepared in advance. So he was ready when the temptation hit. Matthew Henry says, The most effectual way to prevent sin is to hide God's word in our hearts, that we may answer every temptation as our master did with, It is written. Psalm 37, verse 31, describes the wise man, the law, of his God is in his heart, his steps do not slip. We need to have God's word in our hearts, not just for when we face temptation, but really for every facet of life. Thomas Manton comments on this passage, this verse that we're looking at. He says, in short, by holding it in our hearts is meant not only a knowledge of the word, but an assent to it or an agreement with it, not only an assent to it, but a serious and sound digestion of it by meditation. Not only a digestion, but a constant respect to it, that we may not transgress it as it is a rule, nor lose it as it is a treasure, but may have it ready and forthcoming upon all occasions. So we want to develop a Bible-saturatedness in our lives, to the point that everything we do and say is directed and shaped by God's law. And to do that, you have to spend time in it. We've got to meditate on it. We've got to store it in our hearts. So kids, if I gave you 50 black marbles and one white marble, and we put them all in a bag and we mixed it all up, and then you had to reach into the bag without looking and pull out one marble what color would it probably be? Black. Right. Because there's a lot more black in the bag than white. That's why it's important that the word of God dwell richly in us. What kind of thoughts do we want to have ready at hand throughout the day? The thoughts that come from God's law or thoughts that come from what our culture throws at us or what the TV suggests to us or unbelieving friends suggest to us, and the point is not that we should never spend any time with those things or those people, but what are you predominantly putting into your mind and heart? What are you meditating on? Manton, again, writes that the mind works upon what it finds in itself, as a mill grinds whatsoever is put into it, chaff or corn. Therefore, if we would prevent wicked thoughts and musings of vanity all the day long, we must hide the word in our heart. If we've stored it in our heart, then God's word will give us comfort and counsel when we're alone and we don't have any outside help. It'll it'll help us in our jobs and our business relationships. It'll help us be prepared for Temptation, it'll provide help and relief when we face trouble and difficulty. If you were facing some kind of sickness and there was a plant growing in your garden that would restore you to good health, would that plant do you any good? Only if you know that it's there and what it can do for you. Same with God's word. We must know God's word. Calvin writes, he says, it's not enough that we've been at church and heard what was said and that every one of us has mumbled up to himself some one thing or another. But the word of God must be secured in us and hid in our heart that it is resident and continually abiding and received with such an affection that it is imprinted on us. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Now, you remember from last week what blessed means. It has the idea of happiness or that kind of deep seated joy or fulfillment. And here we read that God is blessed. God's happy, He's fulfilled, He's full of joy. He doesn't need anything in order to be fulfilled. He doesn't need you, and He doesn't need me. He's perfectly self sufficient and happy in Himself. Now, why does the psalmist take note of this? How does this fit into what he's saying? Well, follow the logic of it, okay? If God is perfectly fulfilled and joyful in himself, and if God's laws are the expression of his character, and they reveal to us what is the best way to live, because we're made in his image to reflect him, then if we want to find true joy and happiness, we should follow God's law. And if we need to learn God's law, because we don't automatically just know it all, who would be the best teacher? God would, of course. It's his law. It's his design. It's his plan for how man is supposed to live and find true joy. So the psalmist says, teach me your statutes. You are blessed, and I want to be too. So... "'Teach me your statutes.'" We're naturally ignorant. Ephesians 4, verse 18, describes the condition of man apart from God. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. But for the believer who seeks to know God's law, that law shapes us to be more like God, to love what he loves and to hate what he hates, to live the life of God. So God uses his law by the power of his spirit to change our affections, to change our desires. Think of what Jesus says in John chapter six. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Okay, that's our natural ignorant condition. We are unable to come. But in the next verse, Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Jesus says. So the believer is taught by God. As the psalmist says, teach me your statutes. Spurgeon said, when food is eaten, the next thing is to digest it. And when the word is received into the soul, the first prayer is, Lord, teach me its meaning. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Well, that's the text for this morning. Now we want to identify one principle about God's law and then look at kind of how that applies to a specific law that God gives us in the Bible and and to our lives today. And the principle about God's law that I want us to see today is this. God's law is the ethical roadmap of the Christian life. God's law is the ethical roadmap of the Christian life. We talked earlier about the importance of having an accurate map. Well, what's our roadmap for ethics, for deciding what's right and wrong? And I want you to see that God's law is the ethical roadmap for the Christian life. Now, when we're talking about ethics, knowing what's right or wrong in any given situation, or about sanctification, becoming holy so that we do what is right, There's a crucial question that has to be asked, and here's the question By what standard? If you can learn to ask that question all the time, it'll serve you well. Oh, this is a good movie. By what standard? I think this is a good tax policy. By what standard? I think she should divorce him. By what standard? How do we measure what is good? See, man's attempts to measure what's good, what is just, apart from God, are an abject failure. We come up with man-centered ideas of what's good. Good is whatever the majority thinks, or good is following your heart, and on and on. And one very powerful and influential idea today goes by the name of social justice. And we've talked about this before, but it'll help to think about it briefly again. Joe Boot explains that social justice involves a victimization mentality, blaming a bad environment or certain groups or classes within society for systemic injustice and inequality because of unjust social and political structures that are perpetuated by the powerful and oppressive. And he goes on, he says, typically in this vision, Everyone has the alleged inalienable right as a matter of justice to equal access to land and resources and education and opportunity for betterment and marriage and a good job and adequate income as well as various social services and increasingly a right to positive outcomes in all of those endeavors. So in this idea. Justice is defined not according to an outside, eternal, unchanging, transcendent standard, the character of God. But instead, justice is defined by the idea of equity or equality, by which is meant equal outcomes. So if I've had a harder life than you, that's not fair. It might be that my environment is to blame or other races or something else, but I've been oppressed by not having all the advantages that you have. So what does justice look like in that vision of the world? Well, justice then is a leveling of the playing field. But no, actually, more accurately, justice is a leveling of the awards podium. I should end up with at least as much as you. So I need to be given... More money, a better job, a more prominent position. And where is that going to come from? Well, it'll come from you since you have more. So California is currently considering reparations. But they're struggling to identify who should get them. Black people who are descended from slaves are a shoe-in because they've experienced oppression in their family line that certainly has affected them today. But what about black people who aren't descended from slaves? Well, some people think that since black people are thought to be at a disadvantage today simply because of their skin color, they ought to be eligible too. And others say, no, only the ones who are descended from slaves. And so there's disagreement. How do we determine who really is at a disadvantage and who we have to bring up? Who's to say? How should we judge? By what standard? And Christianity has an answer. By the way, it's not just California. Canada is currently dealing with the issue of, in the court system, changing the penalties for criminal behavior so that the penalty, the standard penalty that a white person would get is automatically reduced if you're black. It's a different system of standards to measure what justice is. And you have to ask the question, again, by what standard? But Christianity does have an answer. Ethics should be God-centered. Scripture, specifically God's law, should be our rule for ethical decisions. Think of it this way. There is no standard out there called goodness which God has to measure up to. Sometimes we think of it that way. But God's not measuring up to some standard and happens to be perfect at measuring up to that standard. No, God himself is the standard. What God is, is good. That's how we know what goodness is. What what is like God, then, is good. So, Bonson writes about this, he says good does not exist independently of him and can't be discussed without bringing him into the picture. And God has revealed that goodness that he has to us in his law. Because remember the law is a transcript of his character. The law puts the definition of good into concrete form for us because it reveals to us who God is. And therefore, it is the standard. By what standard? By the standard of God's law, which is to to say by the standard of God himself. R.J. Rushduni explains then, this makes the external revelation of scripture a necessity. And scripture alone gives the authoritative answer to all moral questions, or the light in terms of which all moral questions must be answered. How do we know what the standard is? God's revealed it in his word. See, if we, just, if we just rely on our own ideas, they will fail. Natural law theory is going to fall short. Our emotions are not a sure guide. The voice of the people, the voice of the majority will get it wrong. Only in God's law revealed in scripture will we find a sure guide. And this is why Christians have historically embraced God's law as a rule for ethics and for holy living. If we go back to 1689, this is the London Confession of Faith. Let me just read you um, three portions of their statement on the law. The moral law does forever bind all as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. And that, not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So we're all obligated to obey God's law because he's the creator of us all. Next point, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and binds them to walk accordingly. That's exactly what our point is this morning. That God's law is the ethical roadmap for the Christian life. It goes on to say, Neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. How can we do what the law says? Well, if we are believers who have the spirit of God, then just like Ezekiel promised, as we saw last week, the spirit gives us that life, enables us then to keep God's law. Now, this point is incredibly important. I want to emphasize this. So I'm going to share with you this morning two lengthy quotes. This is my warning this is, this is those couple of minutes where you have to really focus in, okay? From two guys who've thought long and hard about this. The first one is from Greg Bonson, and I'm just going to kind of comment on it as we go, but work to follow along with what he's saying, okay? He says, recognizing that the spirit bears witness to the word, we should not trust ourselves or our feelings of spiritual guidance to draw up the blueprint of Christian ethics, the pattern of our sanctification must be learned from the word of God written. Okay, I'm not a trustworthy source to determine right and wrong. God's word is. Next, Christian morality has an objective standard of righteousness on which it depends for guidance in ethical decisions. Early in the Bible, it's revealed to us that sanctification, becoming holy, must be according to the law of God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So God, right from the beginning, says this is part of the reason the law was given. The law is the transcript of God's holiness and the pattern for human righteousness. Our example in sanctification is the obedient son, Jesus. We are to be conformed to his image And thereby we shall be holy as our heavenly Father is holy. And then he says, the Older Testament agrees perfectly with the New Testament that the Father is the pattern of our sanctification. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Where's that from? Old Testament or New Testament? Yes. It comes from Leviticus, but Jesus quotes it and applies it in the New Testament, and Peter does as well. Christ, the highest revelation of what God is, is an example to us of complete obedience to God's law. Consequently, the law as a self-revelation of God's holiness must be taken as the ethical roadmap of the Christian walk. There's where I stole the phrase. If we are to be like God in the way he requires, then our lives must conform to God's law. Theonomy, and that word just means God's law. So theos is God, namas is law. Like auto means self. So autonomy is self-law. Okay, so theonomy is the manual of Christian living. Autonomy is the way of spiritual death. So if we come to see the law as God sees it, as perfect and holy and good, then why wouldn't we want to follow it as our ethical roadmap? The Baptist minister from the 1700s, Abraham Booth, gave a great answer to that question. So that's what I want to share with you now. He says, Why should anyone wish to be free from the law considered as a rule of moral conduct? It commands nothing but what is right nor forbids anything that's not wrong. As the thing it requires... Are worthy of God and useful to man, so the things it prohibits are hateful to him and hurtful to us. So the law, though, now no longer carries any curse or threat for us if we are in Christ, because Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law for us. He's taken the curse of the law on our behalf. So the law no longer has that threat, that, that, that demand over us but it still has the purpose of showing us how to live. Okay, so he goes on. The believer beholds the law, not in the hands of Moses and as surrounded with the flames of Sinai, but in the hands of that Prince of Peace who is King of Zion. In other words, Jesus. He sees that the dear, the adorable, the ascended Jesus, having fulfilled its high demands as a covenant and released him from its awful curse, Now employs it, employs the law, as an instrument of his benign government for the good of the redeemed and the glory of his eternal name. As in the hand of Christ, it is a friend and a guide pointing out the way in which the Christian should walk so as to express his gratitude to God for his benefits and to glorify the Redeemer. It shows him also. How imperfect is his own obedience and so is a happy means of keeping him humble at the foot of sovereign grace and entirely dependent on the righteousness of his divine sponsor. God's law then is entirely different from man-centered systems of ethics. Some people approach this whole topic and they say, but really what we need is just love. Isn't that a good enough rule to live by? I mean, love is love. Love is colorblind. Love is all you need. Love wins. But consider, for example, just the short little book of 1 John. Listen to what John says in there. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. That's the evidence of love. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. If you want to know what love looks like, Look to God's commandments, God's law. That also means then that if you want to evaluate or measure other systems of ethics, other systems of people saying this is right and that is wrong, anything this world would suggest or promote, you have to measure it according to the standard of God's, wo- God's law, God's word. The world says this is good. By what standard? We must measure everything according to the standard of God's law. So let's take a look at one example of a biblical law. And the verse I'm going to share with you comes in the context of, you may have heard this phrase, lex talionis. It's the familiar saying, an eye for an eye. So this is, the passage is describing what penalty is appropriate for various crimes. Okay, And we're going to look at Leviticus 24, 22, but I'll start with verse 21. Here's what it says. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. So a life for a life. You see the idea here is a a proper penalty for the crime that is committed. But then look at verse 22. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. For I am the Lord your God. This verse is saying that justice means everyone is held to the same standard with the same penalties, irrespective of whether they're an Israelite or not. So let me just give you a few other verses that say something similar so you get a feel for the law principle that's at work here. Leviticus 19, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Or Exodus 12, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Or Numbers 9, you shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. Or Numbers 15, for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. Or Deuteronomy 1, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. Okay, so these are instructions for the judges, how to carry out justice. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. You get the idea. God's law applies to both the Israelite and the foreigner equally. The judge should make no distinction. Justice applies in the same way to both. And this is true regarding wealth, whether you're rich or poor, or ethnicity or any other thing that might divide people out. This helps us to realize that God's law applies universally to all men. Greg Bonson helps us here. He says, Because God's law cuts across social distinctions, nobody is free from its demands. The conclusion must be, then, that God's law was binding on the Gentile as well as the Jew in the age of the Older Testament. Thus, the law itself specified that even the alien was to be judged by the magistrate in accordance with the standard of God's law. Now, because of this biblical foundation... In Western culture, Western law has traditionally incorporated this idea into the legal codes. Our own legal codes, you can trace them back through colonial times, back to Great Britain, on back through British common law, and and on back to King Alfred in the ninth century. Legal historian Harold Berman notes how Alfred's laws were drawn from the Bible and from the early church. And one such law that King Alfred gives is this. This is his own phrasing, basically, of the biblical principle that we've been looking at. Alfred says, Doom very evenly. Doom not one doom to the rich and another to the poor, nor doom one to your friend and another to your foe. And that was traditionally part of our legal system as well. Here's an example. This is an 1883 case from Texas, Duran v. State. And the court opinion included this comment. True, the deceased was a Chinaman, a foreigner, and a heathen, but still he was a human being. And in the estimation of the law, his life was as precious and as much entitled to protection as that of the most exalted and best beloved citizen of our own state. That's the Old Testament law that we've been looking at, put into practice in our legal code in our country's history. Today, however, the prevailing idea is that true justice means not treating all men equally. Supposedly oppressed groups should be shown favor in order to even out the outcome. But you see what that does. That puts the state in the role of God, both in declaring what justice is, and in defining how that justice should be enforced and enacted. But that's a far cry from biblical justice. As God's people, we absolutely must submit to God's definition of what is good and what is just. God defines good law. God defines justice. And the only way that you and I will be able to promote true justice in this world is if we ourselves are personally saturated with God's law rather than with the world's ideas. And that brings us back to where we started in Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Oh, how I love your law. Would you pray with me? Lord, your law is good and it's holy and it is given for our benefit. And so often we just keep it at arm's length. Sometimes because we don't know what to do with it. Sometimes because we frankly don't have the desire in our hearts to follow it. And so I pray that you would use the passage that we've looked at this morning in Psalm 119 to encourage each one of us to be in your word, to hide your word in our heart so that it becomes part of us, so that it changes the way we think and the way we love. I pray that we would learn your law, not as an oppressive um, set of rules that are our duty, but as something that is our delight because you've given it to us for our good. It reveals to us who you are. You are blessed. You are happy. You are fulfilled in yourself. And we want to have that too. We want to be like you. So teach us your statutes. Help us to be able to to learn to say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.